Well, modern communication has what are called sound bites. As Mark Twain said, they are minimum of sound with a maximum of sense. It's short, sometimes well-crafted statements that hopefully linger with the hearer for a long, long time. We find it a lot in, in advertising. Uh, we find it a lot in, in politics. Uh, and we even find it in church and other places as well. And there are some that I know for you, uh, I just have to start saying it and you'll remember because it's stuck with you. It's one of those. Um, former President John F. Kennedy asked not what you can do for your country. It's what your country can do for you. No, no, no. That's not what your country can do for you. You got me messed up there, Richard. That's not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. You know, a lot of, a lot of work went into a speech that uh, President Reagan gave in Berlin in 1987. And uh, there was a lot of debate over one line in that speech. And his, uh, his aides told him to take it out. It was, too, it, was, it was too aggressive. He needed to pull it out of that thing. And, and President Reagan says, no, I want to keep it in there. And it's become an immortal phrase when Reagan said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. You know, uh, just powerful, powerful statement. And then, you know, we just hear him all the time. You, you just, the, these things culturally. Let me give you a few more of these. Uh, Neil Armstrong, when he, when he placed his foot on the moon, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. If you watch the O.J. Simpson trial, this, this stuck with you. Johnny Cochran, I know he spent time coming up with this. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Okay? I'm getting tired of this one. I hear, I hear it multiple times a day if I'm watching a basketball game. Liberty Mutuals, you only pay for what you need. I'm not promoting them. I'm just saying that's, that it sticks with you. Even when you want to forget it, it still sticks with you. Um, but here, actually, here's one of my favorite ones. It's right here in Colorado Springs. Saddle Tree Homes. We build the homes you see when you close your eyes and dream. Someone put a lot of time and thought into that, and it, it's, it's so beautiful, and it sticks with you. It says a lot in a little bit. And that's what these statements of Jesus on the cross are like. They're like sound bites. That Jesus is saying something has a minimal sound, but maximum sense. And so, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I mean, that sticks with us. Today you'll be with me in paradise. It is finished. All those. But the one we're going to look at today probably is the most mundane and ordinary of them all because even your child or grandchild says this, I thirst. And so what's the big deal about that? Why is that included among the major statements of Jesus? And I think if you put it in the context, you'll understand it really does have profound meaning for our lives. Because if you remember, if you weren't with us last week, Jesus was on the cross. He was crucified Friday morning. He was hung between two thieves. About noon that day, the sky turned black as it was like a solar eclipse in the middle of the day. And for three hours, the sky was black and Jesus let out this kind of blood-curdling cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At the close of those three hours, and we learned that that darkness was very representative of sin and judgment and the penalty that was being paid for sin. Jesus suffered the worst pain during those three hours. It wasn't just the crucifixion pain, the physical pain. It was the emotional pain, the spiritual pain, separation from the Father they had never, ever experienced. That's the ultimate pain. It's being separated from God forever. Jesus experienced that for this brief time on the cross. But then after those three hours, uh, the sky became bright again. And, and really, the heavy lifting was done, but Jesus needed to say a couple more things. And before he can speak those words, He's got to have his thirst quenched. So here we read in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verses 28 and 29. It says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, 
I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. I thirst. This is not a sports drink by the Apple Corporation. It's Jesus' cry that he is thirsty. He's been there a long, long time. It's understandable. It's the heat of the day. He's been up all night. He hasn't been able to get a drink, eat any food, do anything really they would normally do. But, but he can't even speak the words he wants to speak unless he gets something to drink. It's not really a request. It's a veiled request because he just says, I thirst. And fortunately, someone gracious enough hears him and runs over, takes a sponge, dips it on a stick in some sour wine, lifts it up, and Jesus is able to get a drink and then speak his final words. And then we're going to look at those two final words. I think they're the most powerful statements of all. This Good Friday, uh, we're going to look at one of those. It is finished. And then on Easter Sunday, we'll look at um, Jesus' last statement from the cross when he said, into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. And then what took place just a couple days later. And so Jesus is thirsty. But, but there's not just a physical thirst there. There's a spiritual thirst to finish God's work so that he could become our savior. And here's the real message that I take from, from this statement, that Jesus thirsted so you and I could have our thirst quenched. Jesus thirsted went through all that he went through so you and I could have our thirst quenched. His, his real goal is not just to get a drink, because if that's all he wanted was, a drink, you know, I might as well just die. No, I've, I've got something else to do here. I've got some words to speak. I have some things that I need people to hear. And so I thirst. I've got to finish the work. I need the people to know that I finished the work that I came to do. So he cries out for this. What does this reveal about Jesus? Well, first of all, it displays his humanity. It displays his humanity. Jesus thirsts because he was a human. Spirits don't thirst. Ghosts don't thirst. And for those who think that Jesus wasn't fully human, this is a revelation that, yes, he was. Uh, He was human. He was a man in every sense of the way. You can go without food for several days, but you cannot go along without water. Because once you, you deprive your body of water, every single cell in your body has water in it. It, it. it needs water to function. And when you deprive your body of water, it affects the cellular level. It affects your blood's ability to carry nutrients um, to the capillaries, to the far reaches of your, of your body. It's, it affects your digestive system from swallowing and digesting and then eliminating toxins from your body and waste. You can't do that without moisture and water. Your kidneys can't function to purify what's going into your mouth without water. See, it, it even affects your body temperature, whether you are drinking or not. And it even affects your brain function. You don't think clearly when you're deprived of fluids. Now, you can think clearly when you're fasting and drinking, but if you stop drinking, it will affect your brain. And so Jesus is fully human, and he's being affected as a typical human. Now, the reason I bring this up is all through history, people have wrestled with this concept within the church. How could Jesus be fully a man and fully God, all in the same body? How could he be both? Surely he can't be both. There's got to be another explanation for this. And so there's been all these um, other doctrines taught within the church, from Arianism to Gnosticism to Docetism to these other isms all through history. And usually what they're doing is, is either minimizing the divinity of Jesus. He really wasn't God. Couldn't have been because he was in a body. God's not in a body. Or he wasn't fully a man. He was a spirit that appeared as a man. And so every so often, church leaders would say, hey, we've got to come together and straighten this out because there's people in the church that are believing the wrong thing. They would gather in these things called councils. And the church leaders would hammer out a statement based on their study of scripture and discussion and debate of this is what we believe. And so you have things like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, Athanasius' Creed. 
Well, in uh, 14, excuse me, 451 AD, there was a council that gathered in Chalcedon, and their statement from their gathering begins like this. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach people to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man. Truly God and truly man. 100% God, 100% man. How that works, I don't know. He's the only one that's ever lived like that. 100% God, 100% man. Now, Jesus has always been 100% God because he goes back all through eternity. He wasn't created. He's always existed. He's always been God. But remember a point of time almost 2,000 years ago when he took on humanity, took on a human body. We, we, we call it Christmas, the incarnation. John writes about this in his gospel in this first chapter. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son. Jesus took on a body. He was born as what? A baby. He cried. He, he, he made messes. He probably threw up a time or two. Um, you know, Jesus acted like a little child because he was fully human. Now, why does this matter? Why, why can't we just say, Pastor, it doesn't matter to me whether Jesus was 100% or 100% or 50% or 50 or 80-20. It doesn't matter. I just believe in Jesus. Well, I have to ask you, uh, is the Jesus you're believing in able to save you? Because Jesus even asked his own disciples, you know, there's a lot of rumors going around about who I am, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say I am? And that's my question for you. Who do you say Jesus is? And I'll tell you this. If Jesus was not human, he could not be a human um, sacrifice or a human substitute for us on the cross. He had to be human in order to take our place. He had to be made just like us. He had to go through all that we go through. He was born. He, was de- he, he developed as a, as a little boy. He, he lived as a man. He was tempted. He hungered. He thirsted. He slept. He sweated. He, he dealt with all kinds of issues that we deal with. He could identify with us. And so Jesus, when he went to the cross, could say, I can be your representative because I'm one of you. So Jesus was able to be that, that human sacrifice because he was like us. Book of Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Jesus needed to be human to take our place. He took our place on the cross. But there was more than that. Jesus not only took our place as a human, he identifies with us as a human and is able to help us in our time of need as believers. See, Hebrews, a few chapters later, actually says that we have a high priest who's able to sympathize with us because he himself was tempted but was without sin. And so when you start going through issues in your life and go, I wonder if Jesus understands, he goes, yes, I do. I know what stress is like. I know what rejection is like. I know what bullying is like. I know what betrayal is like. I know what it's like to be frustrated and disappointed. I know all that, but I never was defeated by the circumstances or my emotions. He always overcame, and so he's able to help us as our faithful high priest. And you know, so often, even in Jesus' day, people could not grasp, how could this guy who looks so much like us be God? Even when he was before Pilate and says, hey, I'm a king of another world. When Pilate then came out to introduce him to the crowd and asked them whether they wanted to choose Barabbas or Jesus, uh, here's what Pilate said about him. Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, behold the man. The man. But that man went to a cross and he was crucified there. And by the way, do you know the word um, excruciating literally means out of the cross? 
that the pain, excruciating pain, was the pain that Jesus and others experienced through crucifixion. He endured everything. In fact, he was offered a drink to to numb the pain. It, It was wine mixed with gall or myrrh. It would have numbed his nerves a bit so it wouldn't have been so painful. He says, nope, I've got to do the whole thing. I've got to do it to the full capacity. I've got to, I've got to suffer to the, just like anybody else would. He was a man on the cross suffering like us. But because he was God, he was able to have victory over death and rise from the dead. Jesus was crucified in a body, was buried as a body, was raised as a body, a glorified body. Then he ascended to heaven in a body, and the angel said, you know, the way you saw Jesus leave, he's going to come back. Guess what? He's going to come back in a body, and he's going to put his feet on this earth, and he's going to reign on this earth as a king of kings and lord of lords. So when I read the Bible, what I find is when Jesus took on a humanity 2,000 years ago, he wears that. He, he, we're going to recognize him in a body in the future. Jesus was displaying his full Humanity. That's why he thirsted. But what else is going on here? Well, Jesus affirmed his true identity because he knew it was happening around him and that it was a fulfillment of Scripture. John writes this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. He said it because he was fulfilling Scripture. You know, there are some Scriptures that if you read, like, um, you can read the the. the the Messiah will be born of a virgin. So you can look forward to that. You know that's coming. You know, okay, when you see this child born of a virgin, that's the one. But there are other prophecies in the Old Testament you would have never have known until it happened. And we looked last week at Psalm 22. And all the passages in Psalm 22 that seem to refer to Jesus on the cross. Now, when David wrote it, he wrote it about himself. And nobody who read that said, ah, oh, you know what? That's going to be the Messiah when he comes. This stuff's going to happen to him. They didn't know. We only know because Jesus refers back to it. And now we go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's what was happening there. So Psalm 22, if you weren't here last week, uh, Jesus starts quoting this psalm, starting with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's literally right out of Psalm 22, verse 1. And then a little while later, how he's surrounded by enemies and how these people gamble for his clothing. And, and we see that, that in that psalm, David writes that his hands are pierced, his hands and feet are pierced, speaking of the type of death Jesus would die. And there's a part in that psalm, Psalm 22, where David writes this, and Jesus, is, Jesus knows this is about him as well. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. So David wrote that about himself, but Jesus knows that's him. Potsherd is a piece of pottery. It's like a fragment of a, of a, a vessel that's been shattered you know, when, when pottery is made, when it's formed, it's, it's clay, and it's soft, and it's moist, but when all the moisture is sucked out of it, when it's put in a kiln or fired or out in the sun, it bakes, all the moisture goes out, and what happens? It gets hard, just like cement. Jesus is there, and all the moisture is getting sucked out of him. His mouth is dry. He can't even speak. In fact, I, I suspect that Jesus' words would have come out something like this, very raspy, very soft, I, I, I thirst. You know, he's just, he's, he, doesn't, he doesn't have energy, he doesn't have the volume, and he doesn't have the moisture in his mouth even to speak. Now, m- many scholars believe there's another psalm, though, that speaks really even more clearly of this event. Psalm 69, verses 3 and 21. I am weary with my crying out, my throat is parched. For my thirst, or for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Wow, doesn't that sound like exactly what's happening there on the cross? So when Jesus reads Scripture... 
It's like his script. The scripture is his script. It's like, can you imagine Jesus growing up and reading the Bible and go, hey, mom, I think that's about me. All the promises, all these prophecies, all these pictures in the Old Testament of things going on, you know, the sacrifices and all that, that's really about me. It's really, it's, wow. So think about this. If Jesus was reading these Psalms, they would have a very different meaning to him than it would to you or I. So Jesus sees himself in the Psalms. Now, according to Matthew's gospel, there's a bystander who heard Jesus. It says he ran. He ran. Like, that guy's thirsty. We got to do something. Dashes over, takes a stick, puts it in the sour wine, runs over to Jesus, lifts it up to him, and Jesus is sucking on the sponge like a hospital patient coming out of surgery. You ever see those, the little, little green sponges on the end of a stick where someone says, yeah, you can't have water, but you can have the sponge. And, and how, how much relief that gives, even just swabbing the mouth with, with water is such a, a relief for the person who's got a dry mouth from anesthesia. So here Jesus is, he's suffering, the person gives this um, sour wine. Now some of your Bibles actually say vinegar. And it's actually a, a weakened wine that had a vinegary uh, 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 flavor to it. How many of you like kombucha? How many of you don't like kombucha? <laughs> kombucha is a, is a drink that has, it's fermented, it has a lot of probiotics, it's healthy, and it's kind of vinegary. And so it has, you add some fruity flavors to it, and um, it's, it can be good for you. They had something that really was like a kombucha, it was called pasca. And the Roman soldiers could take it with them when they traveled because it was cheaper than wine. It was like watered-down wine, and yet it could quench their thirst, and it actually had the ability to kill bacteria in the water and make it taste better. And so it, it sounds like possibly one of the soldiers actually went over into his own stash of pasca or kombucha, stuck the sponge in, and gave to Jesus. Now, that wasn't normal. People wouldn't help criminals. Normally, you'd say, oh, you suffer, you, you jerk. You know, you, you're getting what you deserve. Um, but somehow, and we see this with other soldiers, Jesus is different. I mean, they're looking at Jesus and say, he doesn't curse. He's not angry and hostile. Um, he's not hating people. He's different. By golly, this guy's suffering. Let's get him some water. Let's get him some vinegar. Let's get him some sour wine to drink. And so he runs over, gives it to Jesus. He's sharing that with, with Jesus. Now, he uses a hyssop branch. John, John says the stick that he used, this reed, was actually a hyssop branch, which Okay, it's a branch. What does, that, what does that mean to us? Well, hyssop's very significant. Do you know when the Israelites were preparing to leave Egypt? And it was the, the very first Passover night. They're getting ready. They're eating their last meal in haste. The unleavened bread, the lamb. And then God says to take the hyssop branch and dip it in the, the blood of the lamb and, and then sprinkle it on the doorpost of your home and then the death angel will pass over. It was a hyssop branch. In the Old Testament tabernacle, they would use a hyssop branch to dip it in the blood and sprinkle it in the, um, in the place of worship to signify that, that, that life is now conquering death here. We're overcoming the, the death that's in this room by the life that's in the blood. And so they're, they're purifying things with the blood. But they were told to use a hyssop branch. And I don't know why hyssop, but that's what they used. David, in Psalm 51, after David committed adultery with Bathsheba, felt overwhelming guilt 
Um, David said, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. He knew that forgiveness was somehow tied to whatever this hyssop branch would do. It wasn't like hyssop forgives you. It's the blood that's being sprinkled. It's, it's the blood that forgives me. It's the blood that's of an animal that's sacrifice that brings my forgiveness. So it, it seems very interesting that, that it's a hyssop branch that's dipped into the, the, with the sponge into the sour wine and lifted to Jesus because he truly is the Lamb of God whose blood was slain and shed for the sins of the world. There's Jesus dying on the cross. Now, he knew that was his mission. John the Baptist knew that from the very beginning, probably in prior conversations. First time John the Baptist saw Jesus in his public ministry, he said, look, there, look, here comes the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But the disciples never really grasped that. They could never grasp that Jesus actually had come to die. But Jesus knew that all along. One time, uh, the mother of James and John came to Jesus and says, hey, when you enter into your kingdom, could my son sit on beside you? He said, uh, ma'am, you don't, you don't know what you're asking. He says, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I, that I am to drink? What is the cup? This is not the cup of the Last Supper. This is the cup of the wrath of God. If you read in Revelation about the bowls and the cups, this is a cup of the wrath of God. Jesus is saying, only I can suffer that. Only I can endure that. You can't. You don't want to endure that. That's why you're not able, but I am. Because I'm fully man, but I'm fully God. So Jesus is able to drink that cup. And what it tells me is Jesus is thirsty to fulfill God's mission for his life. He doesn't shy away from it. He's not trying to avoid it. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed and said, God, not my will, but yours be done. He is heading to the cross. He said, I want to finish it. We're at the finish line. Let's go. He's ready to pour out his blood and endure, uh, as ugly as it's going to be, the wrath of God. And that's what he did for those three hours on the cross when the sky became black. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness, Righteousness, for they will be filled. What does that mean? It means that the greatest craving of my life, of my soul, of my spirit, is to do God's will, to do the right thing, to live in a right relationship with him. That's, that's what I want to do. And he says, when you live that way, you're filled. You're filled. That raises the question, how hungry are you? How thirsty are you for righteousness? How thirsty are you for God's will? Here's the beauty of, of fasting, which I recommend that it'd be good for every Christian to fast regularly, not just once in a lifetime or once a year, but, but have times in your life where you say, I need to fast. Because what it does is you say, food's not more important than God. I hunger for you, God, more than food. Now, you can say that, but you show it when you fast. Because I'll tell you, when you fast and you walk past the donut section, you walk past the, you know, the pizza place, and, and, and you see all, there's a steak, and you go, oh, my goodness, I want something to eat. But you know what, what carries me easily, really pretty easily through, is I just remind myself, you know what, that's temporary. That food is temporary. I hunger more for what God wants in my life than even that. Do you have that hunger? Because he says, I will satisfy that kind of hunger and that kind of thirst. That's why on the cross, this is the third thing I want to point out. Jesus became the true remedy for our thirst. He became the true remedy. In 1994, 
Sprite came out with this ad campaign called Obey Your Thirst. Remember that? Obey Your Thirst. You know, when you think about it, that's a dumb campaign. Because what it's saying is your thirst has such power over you, you better submit yourself to it. Do whatever it says. Go grab a soft drink because you better obey your thirst. Really? Uh, my, my thirst doesn't have that kind of power over me. So you know what happened? Coke actually said, eh, we're not real pleased with that. That's not going over too well. They actually changed their slogan to uh, freedom from thirst. Freedom from thirst. I think that's bad too. It's like, you shouldn't be thirsty. You want to get that out of your life. It's a bad thing. No, uh, thirst is a good thing. God made us to thirst. But God made us this thirst for something deeper than Coca-Cola and Sprite and, uh, and alcohol and kombucha and all those things. God made us to thirst for something more. By the way, you know what's interesting? Coke feels like, hey, we can meet all your thirst. So we have these new machines called freestyle machines. Have you seen those? Uh, you go up there, and if you ever wanted to get um, just overwhelmed with choices, oh, my goodness. Every kind of, first you pick whether you want water, you want uh, uh, Sprite, you want Coke, you want Fanta, you, you want Barks, root beer, you want ginger ale, whatever. Pick that. And then, like, I like Coke. I'm a Coke person. I'm not a Pepsi guy. I'm a Coke guy. Coca-Cola guy. So somebody might quote that soundbite there and get me in trouble. So Coca-Cola guy. So I walk out there, push Coca-Cola. Boom. Seven more choices. Oh, my goodness. Do I want lime in it? Do I want vanilla? Do I want Orange, you want cherry, uh, you know, do I, do I want jalapeno? What do I want in my Coke? Uh, oh, oh, I don't know what to do. And so, you know, it makes getting drinks, you know, overwhelming sometimes. Sometimes it's better not to have all those choices. But even those choices, after a while you go, you know, that doesn't satisfy. I'm tired of it. I need something better. Now, that's why water is really like the ultimate drink for quenching your thirst. But water is just representative of something even greater. God wants to provide a spiritual kind of water. This is the cry um, of his people in the Old Testament. This is God's judgment of his people in the Old Testament, of how they failed to thirst for him. He speaks to the prophet Jeremiah, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What's happening is God says, I'm the source. Come to me. Oh, oh, no. I don't want you. There's got to be something a little bit better than you, God. Something a little bit better than you. So, so he says, you've carved out cisterns that you believe are going to satisfy you, but they're cracked and they're leaking. They cannot do that. Only I can do that. God is the source of true spiritual nourishment. And he knows we are desperately thirsty for something And yet we're searching, and people search all the time, and maybe you're one of those who keeps trying to fill that void with something else. I just need something to kind of inspire my life, something to pull me through, something to be excited about. And you go, yeah, I know Jesus, but I want something else too. And so we we have all these other things, like I'm going to build a new house, buy a new car, get some new clothes, you know, get get new teeth, or I'm going to get something that's really going to make my life complete. I was talking with a gentleman this week, and he told me how a few years ago he started vaping, because it wasn't as bad as smoking. But he's having trouble breaking the habit because fruity-tasting nicotine is pretty addictive. And he's struggling. Nicotine has a power to do that to you. 
My wife and I went and got uh, haircuts this week. We have a, a lady over in old Colorado City we've gone to for years. She says she has a client uh, that she does her hair, and this client has found that she can put videos on a certain website of herself in very product, provocative clothing and doing things that are very provocative, and people subscribe to watch her videos. And she's making $5,000 a month. So she quit her job. I, I looked that place up online and said, what's this thing all about? And I'm not going to tell you the name because some of you know and some of you don't need to know. Um, but it's, it, it has made pornography like right, right at your doorstep. And people are quitting jobs, nurses, teachers, you know, all kinds of professions just saying, how can I, how can I not do this when, when I'm not actually touching anybody and I'm making five to $10,000 a month just having people look at my body? I mean, what have we come to as a culture? I just heard on the radio the other day, you know the number one killer among adults in, in the middle-aged adults from like 25 to 45? Fentanyl. Mm. Opioids. But that one particular opioid. I mean, it has become the number one killer among middle-aged people, and it's getting worse and worse. It's highly addictive. And people are putting harmful things. Why do they do that? Because we, we do all these things because we think, like, I'll, I'll find deeper satisfaction if I can just do this, if I just can get the money. And I'm willing to sacrifice my soul sometimes to get it. One time Jesus came to a woman. She was in Samaria. She, was, she, she went in the middle of the afternoon to the well, and Jesus met her there. He says, man, can you get me a, uh, some water? And they embarked on this conversation. And she was a little surprised because Jesus was Jewish. He said, why are you asking me? And Jesus said, you know, this water I have, I want to tell you about a different kind of water. He says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. It's like he was saying, you know, you keep trying to dip your, your bucket into this well, not just the physical well, but another well, the cistern that you've hewn. And it's, it's a relational merry-go-round. Keep trying one, try another, try another, try. It's not working. And you're wounded and you're hurt and you're crushed and you don't know where to go. And Jesus says, I'll tell you where to go. Here, it's me. It's me. I can give you the water you're truly thirsty for. Now, what's interesting is I don't think she recognized she was thirsty. That's part of the problem with, with, uh, with our lives is like we're doing things to fill a thirst that we, we haven't really acknowledged we have. Like I'm really thirsting for meaning, purpose, identity, I'm really searching for that, but, you know, I'm, I, I, so I, I vape and I drink and I take opioids and I watch pornography, um, you know, I watch endless TV, I shop, I do all these things to fill something, but I don't really know what I'm thirsting for. I don't really know what I'm trying to fill, but God does. God knows what, what you need, and it's Him. You are made to live in a relationship with Him. As one great church father said, there is a God-shaped void in each one of us that only can be filled by Him. And God wants to satisfy that deepest longing within us. When Paul is writing to a church in Corinth, he reminds them of the time back in the Old Testament when they would wander through the wilderness and God gave them um, bread from heaven called manna. And then God provided water when they cried out when they were thirsty, he provided from the rock. Moses went over and tapped the rock and, the, and water came gushing forth from the rock. And so they were nourished. But, but there's a spiritual message behind all that that Paul tells this church. 
Listen to 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 4. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. Well, what's the spiritual food and spiritual drink? I thought they ate manna and drank water. No, he says there's something actually greater that nourished them. For they drank from the spiritual rock that, that followed them and that rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. It wasn't the physical rock that Moses tapped and water came gushing out. Paul says, you know what sustained them through the desert? Jesus. Jesus did. He's deep rock. Okay, deep rock water. Because he's this true source of water that satisfies. And nothing satisfies your soul like Jesus. So here's the deal. Jesus became thirsty so you could have your thirst quenched. He took on a body as a human to take our place on the cross. He came on a mission to fulfill the script that God had laid out for him in this book, the scriptures. He did it all so you and I could have our deepest thirst met. I'm gonna invite our ushers to go ahead and go to the back and prepare because we're gonna shift into our time of communion. I thought it'd be very fitting. So we're talking about hungering and thirsting to tie this into the Lord's Supper. So there was a time when Jesus was ministering and, and crowds were following him because he was doing miracles such as taking loaves of bread and breaking them and multiplying them. And so the crowds just wanted a free meal. And they knew that if they could follow Jesus, Jesus would take care of them. So at one time, and John writes about this in John chapter 6, these people have all gathered around Jesus. He's fed them. But Jesus, you can tell, is a little bit frustrated because there's something deeper he wants them to know. He says, your forefathers ate manna in the desert. You know, you're eating this physical bread, but I am the true bread from heaven. I'm the bread of life. You need me in your life. And, and it gets to the place where Jesus is so blunt about this that he says something that even shocks his disciples. Now, you may not have read this before, but when you hear these words, you probably be a little appalled unless you understand the spiritual meaning behind them. Here's what Jesus said to his listeners. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, you first hear then you go, that sounds cannibalistic. What's Jesus saying here? Oh, my goodness. Has he gone wild? He wants us to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And Jesus is using a very extreme metaphor, basically to say, you need to take me into your life. You need to consume me. You're not getting it. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. You cannot exist without me. Yes, you can, you can make it from one day to the next day physically, but you will not last spiritually unless you feed on me. Obviously, nobody, nobody took him literally and went up and bit his arm. So, he's, so they understood that there's a spiritual meaning to this. And it really is all about consuming Jesus. You've heard you are what you eat. And being a disciple is not following Jesus and watching Jesus do all these exotic miracles. Being a disciple is letting Jesus become integrated into our lives so much that he lives through us. That's what he wants. He wants to live through us so people see God all over the world in so many places, not just one man walking around on this earth in one body, but hundreds of thousands of people who are allowing, are allowing Jesus to live through them. You know, David, in one of his psalms, writes these words, God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you. My soul thirsts for you. Is that you? Does your soul thirst for him? 
And maybe this is a good time with this Easter week coming up just to say, God, I have not been thirsty for you. I mean, I've been thinking about lunch while we're sitting here in church. I'm not thinking as much about you as I should. I've been thinking about the brunch or, or what's cooking on the stove when I get home. Oh, my goodness, I need to get focused on you. Well, let's do that right now before you leave to take some time. We do this every Sunday, but this time I want you to, to focus on just consuming Jesus, even praying, Jesus, be more of my life. I need you. I'm willing to give up the TV. I'm willing to give up the, the toys. I'm willing, I'm willing to give up these addictive behaviors. I'm willing to give up all these other things in my life just to gain you. Remind me what it's like to drink of the living water. Fill my soul. It's thirsty right now. Because I'll tell you this, you look around our culture and we live in a parched land. There's not much out there that's going to satisfy your soul. But right here today, there's Jesus. He's that spiritual rock of living water for you.